The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times, or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. to the weekend at the Tabernacle. Uh, we are so glad you're here. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, in my opinion, you picked a great weekend to be here with us. We are in our study in Judges chapter 8. And if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. But before you do, I want to share one more time a quick announcement about what's going to be happening next weekend here at the Tabernacle. This is our annual weekend where we give one big offering, and it's uh, called The Big Give. Uh, one big offering towards the vision and the mission of this church and what God has called you to do. And if you've been here the last couple of weekends or you've been listening online, uh, you've heard us talk about some of the things that we'd like to do. We'd like to give 25% of it to other ministries and missionaries and outreach outside of our church. But we'd also like to use some of it for the mission and vision that God has called us to. There's some things that we need to do with our facilities, some upgrades with technology, but I may have made the mistake of giving the impression that this is all about stuff. And I want to assure you that the big give is all about vision. Uh, I got a message last uh, weekend. It was actually on Sunday afternoon from a member of our church who happens to be a social worker uh, who works with a lot of single moms and a lot of people that are in crisis. And it was just a text and she said, John, I hate to ask you this, but uh, there's a woman in crisis um, she's separated from her husband. It's an abusive situation. And um, she's working really hard to get care of her children, to actually get custody of her children. But what it meant was she was going to have to move out of her home, out of danger, and into a trailer. And it had to happen on a Sunday. And so the text just said, do you think there are any men that could help us, any men from the church? And so I just put out a quick text to a buddy and he put out a text to all the men from our church that attend uh, the fight club table that I'm a part of. And uh, some guys showed up and I wanted to read to you the message that I got from her later that evening. This is what she writes. She said, when the first two vehicles showed up, I had a huge smile on my face. When the additional seven vehicles showed up, most of them trucks and two with trailers, the lump in my throat grew. In two hours and 20 minutes, 11 hands and feet of Jesus took what was needed for my client to begin the patchwork in her life 
to get her children back in her care. Isn't that awesome? She writes, at one point I looked at her as she was stopped and looking at all these men and one woman work like bees. I said, are you okay? Your eyes are about this big. She began to cry and said she just couldn't believe what was happening and didn't know how to thank everyone. So I hugged her and she was trembling. I told her and her mom that God is good. That was the only God talk that we did other than me explaining to her that there are still marvelous and giving men out there who are part of a fight club men's group at my church and this is what they do. I want to thank each and every one of you. You really have no idea what this meant to this single mom and her mother who by the way asked where she could find a nice single man like all of you and she wrote ha ha. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed in my life. Thank you for modeling what real men should be doing. I honestly believe this woman has not seen a real man in her life in quite a long time. I love you all. So for me, that was a huge encouragement. But it's also a reminder for us that everything we do here at our church is connected. From the excellence that you see on a weekend to the fact that we're one church in two locations to the staff people to the technology that, that, that God is using to bring you this message. It's all connected. We're about loving God, loving people, and making disciples. So I'm asking you whether you're here live today or if you're watching online, consider what God would have you do as part of the big give. And that's next weekend and you can give online and you can give after and And uh, uh, with that being said, enough talk about money. So we're in Judges chapter 8, and uh, we're we're covering uh, this weekend the last part of the life of Gideon. Two weekends ago, we saw the call of Gideon and how God confirmed that God wanted to use him to deliver his people. He gave him a mission, and he confirmed his calling. And then last weekend, we see this miraculous victory And at the beginning of the victory, uh, uh, God had told Gideon, you actually have too many men. Your army of 20,000 is too big. And he starts cutting the army down till it was a mere 300 against impossible odds. And where we left off is Gideon, empowered by God, has the enemies of God and of Israel on the run. The Midianites are being driven out. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end so great. And to be honest, I, I, I can't recall a lot of messages that I've heard on this, but it's in scripture, so I believe it's for us. And one more note before we jump in. I've been saying the past couple weekends that our focus really should be on God when we read and study scripture, and it should. But there's a little bit of a difference in this chapter. You're gonna find that there's not a whole lot about God. It's all about Gideon. And therein lies the problem. He serves as an example of what we shouldn't do. So Judges chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. But Gideon replied, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? 
God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. Now I want to explain something before we go on. Is This tribe was not a part of the 300. They weren't a part of the initial force that God used Gideon to raise up in order to rout the Midianites. So there's some other tribe that Gideon called after the battle began to come and try to capture all of the army. And so they're complaining that they didn't get a little piece of the glory. And so Gideon is kind of using diplomacy here. He's kind of flattering them. He's like, oh, what have we done that's anything in comparison to you? You were the guys that caught those two commanders and brought me their heads. You have the real glory. So that's what's going on there. In verse 4, it says, Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men. And though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Succoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They're very tired. I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your army. So what we need to understand here is this little town, which is a weird name, Succoth, I get it, right? It's really outside of the boundaries of Israel. It's in what we call the Transjordan part, right? It's, it's between them and Gideon, but it is an Israelite town. And Gideon and his boys, they're starving, they're hungry, they've been fighting, they're near exhaustion. And they ask this Israelite town, hey, can we give you some supplies? We're starving. Well, the response that they get is, uh, why don't you go catch the bad guys first? Then we'll give you some bread. So this little village is hedging their bets. They're afraid that Gideon might not win. And if he doesn't, and they aided the enemies of these kings, they're going to pay a price. Look at Gideon's response in verse 7. So Gideon said, After the Lord gives me victory over Zeba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. From there, Gideon went up to Peniel and again asked for food, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. I don't know if you can read the same context that I'm reading here, but it seems that Gideon's getting angry. There's a little bit of a shift. There's a little bit of change in him. Verse 10. By this time, Zeba and Zalmunna, those are the kings that he's chasing, they were in Karkor with about 15,000 warriors, all that remained of the allied armies of the east. For 120,000 had already been killed. Gideon circled around by the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbeha, taking the Midianite army by surprise. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two Midianite kings, fled But Gideon chased them down and captured all their warriors. After this, Gideon returned from the battle by way of Harris Pass. There he captured a young man from Succoth and demanded that he write down the names of all the 77 officials and elders in the town. Gideon then returned to Succoth and said to the leaders, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me, saying, Catch Zeba and Zalmunna first. And then we will feed your exhausted army. Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson. 
punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in that town. Is anyone else catching this? He goes from God is going to use him to defeat the Midianites to going outside of Israel to pursue them. He makes threats against his own people that don't help him. And then when he does capture the kings, he brings them back. And the first thing he does is he he gets a little retribution on those two towns. One of the towns, 70 leaders come out. He has them beaten with sticks and with thorns. He has them tortured. He disciplines them publicly. And then at the other town, he goes there and it says, not only did he tear down the tower, he killed all the men of the town. Some sort of switch has flipped in Gideon. It goes on in verse 18. Then Gideon asked Ziba and Zalmunna, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? Like you, they replied, they all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, Gideon explained. As surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. Now there's a turn in the story we don't see coming. The writer of the book of Judges, he kind of held back that bit of information. I was studying this this week and wait, what happened at Tabor? We, we, we don't find anything else out except what he says here. Apparently, these kings had killed Gideon's own brothers. Now we start to see a little bit of motivation. Verse 20, turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword. For he was only a boy and was afraid. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, Be a man, kill us yourself. So Gideon killed them both and took the royal ornaments from the necks of their camels. And this is just a horrible picture to me. I'm a father, I've got daughters, I've got a son. And I don't know what Gideon was thinking, but in this moment where he's motivated by revenge... He brings his son out and he says, you kill these kings. He's trying to shame the kings and elevate his son. And it's just a terrible moment because what happens is his son ends up being ashamed because he couldn't bring himself to do it. This is a bad father moment in Gideon. And it's a shameful moment in the history of Israel and here in the book of Judges. But there's more. I feel like the Salesman, late night television. Wait, there's more. It gets worse. Verse 22 says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants, 
the purple clothing worn by the kings of the Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made a, a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. So that's interesting because the Israelites should have known they had been told that they would not have a king, that God would rule over them. But now they have a celebrity. Now they have a commander. Now they have a guy that drives out the Midianites and captures kings, and he does it with only 300 guys, even though it's all God's power. And so they do what comes natural to us as human beings. They go, oh, you be our king, you be our leader. Not just you, but your son and your whole household. And Gideon, it seems, in verse 23, has one shining moment when he says, oh, no, not me. I could never be your ruler. God will rule over you. But then he goes, but I do have one small request. How about a little bit of the share? How about I get a little bit more of the share? And gladly, they all make a donation. It was his own kind of wicked big give, right? And he takes that for himself and he does something horrible with it. It builds an ephod. And I don't want to go too deep into that, but the ephod was the breastplate that the high priest would wear in the tabernacle. And he would use it to determine the will of God. And it says that he made his own. And the problem is, is Gideon is not a Levite. That's where the priests were supposed to come from, that tribe. He's of the tribe of Manasseh. And he didn't live where the tabernacle was. He set up his own little church. And although he said he didn't want to be the king, we're going to find he sure did live like one and act like one. The author summarizes it for us in verse 28. He says, that's how the story or that is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years there was peace in the land. But it was a compromised peace. Because it goes on to say, Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. Not the husband of one wife, but many wives. He also had a concubine, in Shechem. This is someone who's not a Hebrew. This is a Canaanite. This is forbidden. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. So it starts to kind of taint a little bit of all the previous victories of Gideon's life. Verse 32 says that Gideon died when he was very old and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash at Oprah in the land of the clan of Abiezer. And as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Berith their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. This is God's word. And I believe that Judges chapter 8 for us 
is intended to be a warning. To be a warning about a man, a great man, a man named Gideon, a man who had a calling from God. A great man who had a calling from God who was listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the heroes of faith. He was a man of faith. But what Judges chapter 8 does for us is it shows us that Gideon loses focus. Gideon lost focus entirely. He took his eyes off who he was supposed to be, what he was supposed to do, and what God was about. He took his eyes off God. Remember the moment when God called him, when he said, oh, I'm weak, I'm nothing? Remember the moment when, when he got the confirmation with the, you, you know, with the sacrifice that he brought, the angel of the Lord made it catch on fire, the confirmation with the fleeces. He got the confirmation we talked about last weekend when he went on the scouting mission and he was so afraid to attack. And he went on the scouting mission and he overheard the guards talking about bread, bro. Remember that? And how he bowed down in worship because he realized his weakness and he was totally dependent and focused on God. But what we find in Judges 8 is that Gideon loses focus. He loses focus. That's the warning for us. It's a horrible thing to lose focus. You know, I was thinking about this... uh, as I was prepping for this weekend. And it brought to mind how many times I see something on video or you know, you're watching an NFL uh, game and you, know, you see a player lose focus and it's, and it's there for everyone to see. Or track and field, how many times we see someone make that fatal mistake of taking their eyes off the finish line, taking their eyes you know, just from maybe celebrating a little too early, maybe starting to believe that they're worthy of coronation. Oh, no, I'm not going to be a king is what Gideon said. But boy, Gideon started getting full of himself, right? In fact, you start seeing how many times in the text, if you go back, when he warned those cities, he said, I will come back when I capture them and I will punish you. I will tear down. Found this example. I was just on YouTube, right? I found a YouTube example of this. This was an... NCAA track meet, the steeplechase to be specific. And it's somewhere in the Pac-10 and, and, and there's a runner and this guy is winning the race. By far, he's in front, right? But the problem is he starts to celebrate too early. He starts getting that little bit of swag like we can do, right? And what happens is he loses his focus and he ends up losing the race. You guys got to check this out. That This is, this is priceless. My word for it, there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can't. And you know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Isn't that nuts? I mean, how embarrassed are you for that guy in that moment? Or maybe you're the person that's like, yeah, that guy got what he deserved. Either way, for that runner who had the race won, he lost the race because he lost his focus. He's pumping up the crowd. Hey, look at me. Hey, yeah, I got this. He has no idea that he's about to be surpassed. It was the same thing with Gideon. 
You know, you heard the announcers talking about this was his coronation. This was, this was it, whatever championship they were in. But then it said something interesting. He said he'll never do that again or he'll never forget that lesson. The problem is in life, we only get one shot. We don't get a do-over. You're born, you're young, you grow up, you get old, and then you die. You're born, you're young for a minute, you grow up, you get older, and then you die. And we've only got one shot to run the race that we've been called to, like Gideon, without losing our focus individually, as families, as a church. If you're called to faith, Scripture has some very instructive words for us in the book of Hebrews. In fact, it's right after Hebrews chapter 11 that actually talks about Gideon and being a man of faith, even though Gideon did not finish well. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Let's look at that verse just for a moment. The second part. He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's the champion. It's about him. He's the focus. Not a leader, not even your church, not your spouse, not the person who led you to Christ, not the disciple, not the distractions of the world. He says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. This is in the New Living Translation. When I memorize that, I love the, the, not the new NIV, but the old NIV. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on him. Don't lose your focus. And in this story, we see that Gideon lost his focus. And it's a warning for us. So how do we make sure we don't lose focus? I I think it's important to go kind of back through and see the little points where we see him lose focus. First, we see, at least I see, that Gideon minimized God's glory. Gideon minimized God's glory. And it's kind of subtle. If if you're not looking for it, you don't see it. But we have to take it in context of chapter 6, 7, and 8. Remember, God is doing this. God is winning the victory. And he's doing it with 300 men. And when he meets up with the tribe of Ephraim, they're ticked off. And they're ticked off for the very reason God had reduced the army to 300 men. He said it's because Israel will boast because he knew in our hearts all of us want glory. Because if I have glory, then I'm not dependent. And if I have glory, I don't need God and I can depend on myself. And so that's what they're arguing about. They, They come to Gideon and say, hey, why didn't you call us? And it says that they were hotly arguing with him. Gideon's response should have been, this is not about you, this is not about me, this is about God. Not about you, not about me, this is about God. No, instead, he uses flattery and smooth talk. He says, oh, there's plenty of glory for you. 
In fact, your glory far surpasses my glory. There's no mention of God. And in doing so, he minimizes the glory of God. Friends, everything that we want our church to be about is the glory of God. Not the glory of Buckley, not the glory of Manistee, not the glory of Northern Michigan, not the glory of the tabernacle or a group of leaders. Everything we do is about the glory of God. And when we start to minimize God's glory, when we stop boasting in the Lord and we start boasting in ourselves, I pray he shuts us down. I hope he shuts us down. And we'll see Gideon eventually, you know, he gets shut down. He lives the rest of his days and he dies. But the result of his life is not a lasting peace. It's a compromised peace. And it just, it's those little subtle things. And it starts in his pursuit where he minimizes God's glory and he starts giving it out to others and maybe taking some of it for himself. Second thing I see that Gideon did that I don't want to do and I don't think we should want to do, whether you're a student, whether you're married or not, young or old, this is danger. I see the fact that Gideon pursued his own agenda. Gideon pursued his own agenda. And we see that in the little turn of the story when we find out why he went outside of his orders. We would say about Gideon, he exceeded his orders by far. God said nothing about going across the Jordan River. He said nothing about pursuing the Midianites all the way back to Midian. He promised he'd give them a victory, but he didn't say anything about that. And we see his agenda, him him pursuing his own agenda in the fact that he promised vengeance on Succoth. He promised vengeance on Peniel because they didn't help him. And he's really after revenge with those two kings that killed his brothers. This isn't God's agenda anymore. It's his own agenda. It was just a couple weeks ago that we were reminded by God's word that the Lord himself says that vengeance is his. He will repay. It's his job to avenge. It's his job to mete out justice, not mine. And Gideon is taking matters into his own hand. He's following his own agenda. He's looking for revenge. In fact, when he, when he comes back with those kings, he said to the people of Peniel, you taunted me. He doesn't say, you refused to help the Lord's mission. He said, you taunted me. Now bring those 70 leaders out and he had them disciplined. That's his own agenda. And then when he brings those kings, he wants to humiliate them. God didn't order that. God didn't say, have your oldest son do that. And his own agenda ends up shaming his own son. He asked a boy to do a man's job. Friends, we see this in the church all the time. We see when, when, when my own agenda starts to supersede the mission of the church, that's when conflict arises. When my own agenda about how things should feel, how things should look, what ministries should be offered, we see that all the time. We always get phone calls and have conversations with people that you know, want to come up to a staff member and say, you know what the church ought to do? This is what you ought to do, right? And, and it's always some new idea, and some of them are good, and I'm not trying to say don't do that, but sometimes it's like, no, we have a laser-focused agenda. 
to love God, love people, and make disciples. Sometimes we get flack for it. It's like, well, why don't we provide this community thing? And why don't we go and, you know, do this? And wouldn't it be nice? And, you know, if we had my hobby just offered by the church. And some of those things we prayerfully consider. But the tabernacle in Manistee and in Buckley is not the community events organizer. We're here to reach people with the gospel. That's our agenda. And the problem is, is when we come to God with our own agenda, it's about us and it's not about him. And that's what Gideon did. He started to pursue his own agenda. When I pursue my own agenda, there's one thing on my mind. And that one thing is that I deserve better. I deserve better. And I deserve better is the root of all our sin. When we make it about me. We see that in the, in the last thing. The last way that Gideon lost focus. This is where it got really sad in the last part of that chapter. Gideon used what God did through him for him. Gideon used what God did through him for him, for himself. How disgusting is that? God did something amazing through Gideon and Gideon used it for himself. We see Christians many times do that all the time. I know there's been times in my own life I've had to fight that because it, you know, it gets exciting. It's like, wow, God's using me and this is awesome. But when we start believing our own press, when we start believing, in Gideon's case, his own celebrity, you know, they came to him and said, Gideon, be our king. And he even played it off all humble. He's like, oh no, I can't be the king. God will be the king of Israel, not me. But he shows us his heart when he says, but, you know, we could take a little, uh, a little donation here. Give me just one gold earring from your plunder. And from that, Gideon used what God did through him to make himself very wealthy. Not only that, he used his celebrity and his wealth to have a lot of wives. That was a sin against God. He had 70 sons. That's a lot of wives. That's against the commands of God. And although he didn't become a literal king... He sure did live like an ancient king. Wealthy, wives, sons, concubines. And then the worst of all, when he used that wealth to make his own place of worship. And those horrible words where it says all of Israel prostituted themselves to the ephod that he built. It became a trap for him. In the ESV, it says it ensnared his family. And there may have been a resulting of 40 years of peace, but it was a compromise peace because their leader lost his focus. It was no longer about the glory of God. It was no longer about God's agenda. It was no longer about God's power working through him. It all became about Gideon. And in that sense, this hero of the faith isn't much of a hero. He didn't finish 
well. He finished not with a across the finish line, yeah, like that guy should have had. He finished with the, yeah, look at me. And it kind of ends in defeat. I don't want that for my life. And I don't think many of us would say that we want that for our lives. And it's important for us to keep our focus. Just like a runner in a race has to keep focused on the finish line. And it doesn't end till I take my last breath and I cross that finish line. It's the same way in the race of faith. If you're a student, there's so many distractions. There's so many things in the world that wants your attention, that wants your time, that wants your passion. Whether stuff you see at school or stuff that we can see on devices or online, there's so many distractions from our focus. And to the students, I would say, guess what? When you grow up into 49-year-old men like me, that doesn't change. It doesn't change. From the time we're born to the time we die, the enemy wants to distract us. But we're called to keep our focus. So what's the point of Judges 8? It's really pretty simple. Don't lose focus. Don't lose your focus. You know, Jesus didn't lose his focus. It says in the Gospels that after the ascension, when he had all of these enemies that, that he knew wanted to kill him, he knew that their, their sole goal was to have him arrested and have him killed, but he knew that that was the finish line that he'd been called to. It says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It means he was resolute. He didn't lose focus. Even when his disciples said to him, Lord, we can't go up to Jerusalem. They want to kill you there. He set his face in that direction. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet said about Jesus in this regard, it says it in the older translations, that he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. I wish I could say the same about Gideon, but we can't. I wish I could say that that's the case about me all the time, but I can't. I get off track. I start chasing my own glory, my own agenda, making things about me. I deserve better. And then what happens? It's just like that runner. There's the danger of getting pipped, as they say, right at the finish line. So what about you? What about me? What's God saying to us through Judges chapter 8? What's God saying to us about our focus?